very much. Thank you. Glad to be here. Glad to talk about sanctification. One of my favorite topics to talk about, um, though a topic that I certainly am not an expert in experiencing. Um, but uh, I guess we'll just dive right into this. Now, you'll notice I gave you quite a few pages. What I was told when I did this in, back in the fall with the ladies was um, if there are extra handouts that you wanted to give people that we're not necessarily going to go over, we could bring those, and they've got a good copier here, so they would make copies. So uh, I'll explain, I hope, why I've given you the various things that we gave you, but we basically are going to go through the main thing that's on the top of your little stack, which is this outline on sanctification, the healing power of the gospel. And let me pray for us first, and then we'll dive into this topic. Jesus, we do thank you that you are Lord and Savior. We thank you that you continually come to our rescue. We pray that even now that you would open our eyes to see you as more beautiful and believable than all the things that vie for our affection and vie for our allegiance. May even as we talk tonight, may the sanctification process increase. May you send your spirit to help us to fall in love with Jesus all over again. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. I've got a good little definition for you. What is sanctification? Sanctification is basically growing in Christ's likeness. Now, to understand what we're going to talk about tonight, I should distinguish justification and sanctification. Justification, um, I think the best way to think of justification, have you guys went over justification yet in this class? No, justification is basically how you're accepted in God's sight. And I think that actually, the way, way that I like to think about it when I explain to my college students is it's the, it's the beauty, it, it, it's basically God declaring you beautiful because you've done everything that you should have from the heart. And to what it means to be justified is that you get credit for that. Not because you've done everything that God requires from the heart, honored him in every way, loved him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, but because Jesus did. And if we're in Christ, then that judgment that God makes upon Jesus, this is my son with whom I am well pleased is what he makes about us. And what justification does is it restores the relationship that we have by removing everything that would make God want to run away from you. And that's a glorious thing. And it deals with this aspect of our sin that we call guilt. Guilt. One, one of the things that we get from Adam and that we <laughs> add to ourselves all the time is guilt. We don't do what we're supposed to do. And we're guilty before God before, for that. Justification deals with guilt completely. When God looks at Christians, He doesn't look as people who are guilty. He looks at them as people who are beautiful in his sight because they've done everything that he required from the heart. It's good news. But I'm not here to talk about justification. I'm here tonight to talk about sanctification. Sanctification deals with this other aspect of what we get from sin, which is pollution. Not only are we guilty, we're screwed up. Right? We have desires and longings. We have commitments to take care of ourselves and to reject God and His grace and His salvation, that even after we become Christians are still powerfully at work in us. And what we're going to talk about tonight is what God does about pollution, our screwed upness, if you will. And I have good news for you tonight. 
that God is committed to dealing completely with your pollution, with your screwed upness, and with mine. Anthony Hokema is a good theologian, has a good theological definition that I, that I really like on sanctification. And you can see it here at the top. Sanctification is that gracious operation of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit's work, and it's a work of grace involving our responsible participation by which He delivers us from the pollution of sin, renews our entire nature according to the image of God, and enables us to live lives that are pleasing to Him. A couple sort of, you know, there's so many things you can talk about in this, in this topic. And in an hour, I've had to make some choices about what I would focus on. And because I've been around Reformed folk for a while, I don't necessarily assume that you all are Reformed, but if you're in a class on Reformed theology, at least you're interested in that, I presume. <laughs> or you've been drugged here by somebody who's interested, and it will still behoove you to learn something about Reformed theology. In my experience, a lot of, a lot of the issues around sanctification that Reformed folk need to, need to grapple with involve the how-to and particularly involve the motivation. Because there's a lot of things that are taught in the church, in the broad evangelical church, about sanctification that are really wrong. And sometimes those things are, are even um, sort of make their way into, into Reformed churches. The issue of sanctification is, a, is one that's a quite a lot of difference. As a matter of fact, a great Dutch theologian, um, Dr. Burkhauer said that, well, you wouldn't know him, but he was R.C. Sproul's teacher, if, that, if you know that name. He said that actually a lot of people think the great difference between Roman Catholicism and Reformed theology is in the area of, of justification. He said that the Reformed view of sanctification is more distinctive and more unique. And, and, and I, think that, I think that there's a lot of truth to that, particularly if you examine the motivation for striving for holiness that the Bible teaches, and you begin to understand. Well, I hope at the end of tonight you'll understand the connection between idolatry, worship, sanctification, why you read the Bible, what the sacraments are all about. All of that stuff comes together when we're talking about sanctification. So, a couple, a couple sort of theological points to make before we dig into into the more practical side of this. The first is this. Uh, there, there are two aspects to sanctification that I think are helpful to, to know about. One can be called definitive sanctification and the other progressive sanctification. John Murray, who is a great theologian and teacher at Westminster Theological Seminary, uh, is a guy who did a lot of work in this area and talked about this. And he made the point that when you actually examine the Bible, the New Testament, and you look at this word group, sanctification and holiness, that most of the time the word is used in the past tense. That Christians are described as those who have been sanctified. And yet it's interesting that when most Christians talk about sanctification, they talk of it as this progressive thing. And Murray said that it's very important that you understand that when you were converted, something huge happened with regard to your pollution. Now, of course, we know something huge happened with regard to your guilt. Your guilt was taken away, and you were given credit for the righteousness of Christ. That's a settled deal at the moment of conversion. But also, 
something huge happened with regard to your pollution. And it's a decisive event that happens. And it's basically this. You were delivered from being a slave to sin. Before you are converted, you're a slave to sin. After you're converted, you are no longer a slave to sin. God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, has broken the dominion of sin over you. Now, Romans 6 deals with this. I think actually maybe an easier verse, especially with our limited amount of time to look at, is in Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. And I put it on the outline here for you. Paul writes this, Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self. And I'm going to stop there. That's this idea of definitive sanctification. He's talking about something that happened decisively. A radical change he's talking about here. Paul uses the language of crucifixion in Romans 6. That your old nature has been put to death. That's very strong language. Most Christians would say, I don't feel like my sinful nature has been put to death. And here's where one of the first major confusions about sanctification happens. A lot of people think that if their sinful na- or if their old nature has been crucified or the old man has been crucified, that then they must be completely new. But look what Paul says as he goes on in Colossians 3, 9 and 10. He says, you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. So you are genuinely new. This is Anthony Hokema's language. You're genuinely new, but you're not perfectly new. Or you could put it this way, that you've been set free to struggle. If you remember the the, the picture in um, Galatians chapter 5, about, you know, depending on your translation, the flesh or the sinful nature with its desires, striving against the Holy Spirit, against the Spirit. And there's this battle here. One of my favorite teachers from years past, Robert Murray McShane, used to have a little saying where he said, a Christian is known as much by their warfare as they are by their peace. And yet I find a lot of the Christian students that I deal with, which are your children in a lot of cases, have somehow gotten the idea that Christians shouldn't struggle. They shouldn't struggle internally. And therefore, they they really are confused about sanctification. They think that they must not be Christians, or they certainly are not growing as Christians if they're struggling with things. If they're not victorious all the time. And this is because we get confused about about this point. We've put on the new self, which is being renewed. Now, in Romans 6, Paul uses more passive language that the old man has been crucified. But the new man is still in need of work. Okay? So both of these are true at the same time. There's been a definitive, decisive change In your nature, not just in what God thinks about you, but in your nature. When you get converted, you're no longer a slave to sin. And I will tell you, oftentimes you have to take that by faith more than by feel. You know, that's one of the reasons I love some of these great old hymns, because they... they, they, They're so honest about this sort of thing. And we, you know, you sing probably that hymn, The Solid Rock, where it talks about... I dare not trust the sweetest frame 
but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And rarely do I find people have any idea what they're singing when they sing that line. Does anybody know what a sweet frame is? Frame is an older way of saying an emotional state. And, and, and so what, we're, what, what that hymn is, is saying, and what we're singing when we say that, is that I don't trust in my feelings. Now, a lot of us have walked with Christ long enough to know that when I feel bad, I know that I probably shouldn't trust that. When I feel like God doesn't love me, I better not trust that. But so many of us, so many of us think that if I feel good, well, then I know that things are right. We trust in our sweet frames rather than trusting in Jesus. And and what I'm telling you is that the normal Christian experience is struggle. And if we don't tell people that, man, people get very confused. The two groups of people who get really confused are kids who grow up in the church and finally kind of get, often when they go off to college, they begin to find people they can begin to talk to about their struggles and they wonder if they're really Christians. I sit down with students all the time who wonder if they're Christians and I say, well, what do you think it should feel like to, to be a follower after God? And have you ever read the Psalms? And, you know, do you think that that's the normal experience for somebody who believes in God? And, and they, they really are confused about that. But not only that, but people who are outside of the faith, who are wondering what it's like to be a Christian, get very confused because we seem to think that we need to pretend that the normal Christian life, that the experience of sanctification is one where everything's wonderful and happy and we're always joyful and clapping all the time, right? So the first you know, thing about sanctification is it's definitive. Something huge has happened, but it's also progressive, It's a lifelong battle. But it's a battle that God is committed to completing. That's good news, right? That he is completed, he's committed to completing the good work he began in you, Paul tells us in his letter to the Philippians. So this is is good news. Now, a lot of times in reform settings, we tend to think of ourselves as justified worms. And there's even older hymns that we sang that, that sort of, give that impression. And what John Murray is arguing, and what I'm arguing tonight, is that Christians should never think of themselves as merely justified worms. That something has happened to you more than just you being justified. Christians are those not who, who, who have, more has happened to you when you got converted than merely God changed his opinion about you. Justification is true but so is definitive sanctification, okay? But you aren't finished yet. I I know, um, I don't don't know if I can mention this name, but since I'm the guest, I can mention this name. Um, Neil Anderson, I don't know how many of y'all were around long enough to remember when he came here once, I think. Yeah, well, you know, as far as spiritual warfare books that are out there, he's better than most. But as far as his understanding of sanctification, he's very confused on this point. And the, the interesting thing is, he's confused in just the opposite way that most Reformed people are confused. Because what he argues is that Christians are saints who occasionally sin. And he basically says that if, if we want to make, do justice to this language of definitive sanctification, that Christians have been sanctified, that what he says is that wherefore we have a new nature. In, in, in the illustration that he uses throughout his books is... Basically, you're a butterfly. You're not a worm. You're a butterfly. Sometimes you forget and you act like a worm. But see, what he's doing is he's doing justice to definitive sanctification, but he doesn't understand progressive sanctification. He doesn't understand indwelling sin. 
And therefore, he ends up making everything that you do is really a result of you giving into Satan and giving him strongholds in your life. Now, I'm not here to necessarily argue about spiritual warfare, but I am here to say that that is not a biblical view of sanctification because it's very naive about the ongoing struggle and what we face. We don't just face problems from Satan getting a foothold in our life. We face the issue of our own sinful nature that is still powerfully at work in us, right? And unless you understand that, you won't know where the battle is to be fought, right? So that, that's, that's the first. The, the second is this. Sanctification is God's work in which we are actively involved. Now this is a little difficult sometimes to nuance just right. So, well, I'll, I'll quote the Bible. That's always the best thing to do. <laughs> Philippians 2.13, Paul says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And notice, God is the one who is at work. But it involves responsible participation. We're not passive robots when it comes to sanctification, but sanctification is not something that we do ourselves. And this is important to understand. God is still God. And God has power to break through your unbelief Praise God. (laughs) Praise God that the gospel, that God comes to the rescue, is true not just when you first get converted, but it's an ongoing truth that we need every moment of our lives. I I tell you, there's another, you know, just real confusion about, about this issue with regard to sanctification. And maybe this is a good place to mention the issue of this theology that's called higher life theology, or Keswick theology, or let go, let God There are a lot of people that say that, you know, the way to sort of give credit to God and really honor him is to say, well, basically, I can't do anything in this work of sanctification. My job is basically just to yield to him, just to become an empty vessel that he flows through. And you think about the kind of songs that we sing in worship in so many of our churches. They they basically teach this sort of thing. That, that our job is just to be an empty vessel and let Christ just flow through us. Or sometimes I, I hear it described this way. Well, I, I often hear it this way when I talk to students who are thinking about getting married and wanting to get married. And they'll, they'll ask me things like, you know, I've heard that, that basically until you're content with being single, that God will never give you a wife. <laughs> and I say, Fascinating. Because my reading the Bible is the only thing that qualifies you for God's blessings is Jesus and his work. And not you sort of doing your part so that God is then released and able to do his work. What this kind of idea, it sounds like it honors God so much. He has to do the work. But what it ends up saying is he can only work as far as I let him. And once you actually see your sin seriously... That kind of theology will lead you into the pit of despair. Now, now the fact is, the fact is, God does involve us in this work of sanctification. We're going to talk about that as we get into this. But you need to understand that God is not thwarted by your unbelief. As a matter of fact, part of the work of sanctification, really the heart of the work of sanctification, is to heal you of your unbelief and your suspicion and your commitment to be your own God. That didn't end 
that suspicion and that commitment to be your own God did not end when you got converted. And so God is still at work on that. And then the, th- the third point that I want to make is sort of an overarching point is this. The power of sanctification comes from the assurance that you are God's child. Look at this verse. It's fasc- fascinating. In Hebrews nine fourteen. the writer of Hebrews says this, how much more then, and he's been talking about the, the sacrificial system and comparing Christ's superior sacrifice to that. And then he draws this application. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Now, I underline that so, we, so that we may serve the living God because that's a, that's a fascinating connection that I don't think a lot of Christians have noticed. Uh, I, I had an opportunity to talk to Bill Lane Um, renowned commentator in the book of Hebrews about this. And he says, you really need to understand in Hebrews that the issue, there's an issue not just of being right with God, but also this issue of the cleansing of the conscience. What older Reformed writers would talk about appropriating the gospel as an ongoing spiritual discipline or practice, making use of the gospel, soaking in the gospel, bathing in it. There's different language that people use for it. But what, what's going on here in Hebrews 9 is not so much talking about being converted and being justified as it is having that truth of justification connect to your conscience. The way John Murray puts it, he says, nothing makes God's service more impossible than guilt. And, and what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that serving the living God requires your conscience to be cleansed. If your conscience isn't cleansed, if the issue of your acceptance with God has not been settled, then all of the Christian things that we're doing are not flowing out of faith. A lot of times they're flowing out of an attempt to secure God's smile. Uh, Tim Keller uses a great little illustration where he talks about a uh, farmer who came to this king and offered him this, this gift. And I think it was a goat or a cow or something like this. And it's an old preacher kind of story, so it doesn't really matter the details. But the, the, this guy, this farmer, lowly farmer, offers this, this great king a cow. And the king thanks him very much and gives him 40 acres of land. And there's a, there's a nobleman who's in the court who's sitting there watching this. He says, wow. 40 acres of land for a cow? I'm going I'm to give him a, a fine war horse tomorrow and see what I can, see what I can score. So the next day, the, the nobleman gives this, this fine war horse to the king, and the king says, thank you very much. And that's it. And the guy says, uh, what's going on here? Yesterday, you know, this guy came to you and gave you a cow. You gave him 40 acres. I give you a fine war horse, and all you say is thanks. He said, well, what you need to understand is that 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 farmer gave the cow to me. You gave the horse to yourself. You gave the horse to yourself. It wasn't a gift to me. So much of what looks like Christian obedience is really a gift to ourselves unless the issue of our acceptance with God is settled by the truth of justification. Unless your conscience is 
cleansed in an ongoing way by the reality of justification by faith, then you find yourself always in this kind of position of trying to barter with God, of trying to sort of get him on your side. And a lot of times you don't know this is what's going on until things come into your life that you didn't want. Trials have a wonderful way of exposing this because we want to cry out, that's not fair. I thought, see, I think what happens in our, in our hearts, we're so wretched. We, we, we so often are trying to get God in our debt. I mean, you wonder, why do we resist the idea of free grace? Who would want to resist that? Don't you want to believe that that's true? Well, you do at one level, but another level, I think we all know that if we're completely dependent upon God for everything, then we really can't, we really can't hold him in our debt and, and make him do what we want. And I think given the choice, most of us would rather have God in our control than we would have God's grace. I think, I think that's something we're thinking about. But, but this issue of having our consciences cleansed so that we may serve the living God, serving the living God. And Tim Keller made this point in a, a talk I heard him give that I thought was fascinating. He's a pastor up in New York City. You've probably, probably heard of him. He, he, he said that really the power to live the Christian life comes from assurance. And it's interesting, the Puritans made a big deal about this sort of thing. They, they, would, they would say that one of the reasons you need to be on guard and fighting against sin is, is not so that God will hate you and cast you off, but because your sense of God's love will be clouded. And once your sense of God's love is clouded, it, it really, well, John Owen says it this way, the great Puritan, he says it, it just sort of makes you really open, the the power of sin comes back in with almost resistless force when you've you've kind of fallen into this this kind of trap uh, of trying to to earn God's love and then wondering if it's it's really working. Um, So serving serving the living God, that's, that's that point there. So then the question is, if all this stuff is true, if definitive sanctification is true, if the work, the Spirit is at work in us in this progressive sanctification, um, if it's God's gracious work, if this power to live the Christian life comes from the assurance of God's love, then what makes, why do we make so little progress? And the answer to that, of course, is that the problem is bigger than we think. That sin is much bigger and much more serious than we think. Classic definition, if you are around PCA circles, you'll probably heard this referred to from Richard Loveless, who was a professor up at Gordon-Conwell in Massachusetts. He says this, In its biblical definition, sin cannot be limited to isolated instances or patterns of wrongdoing or little things that you put in the sin box. This is a sin, and this is not. It's something much more akin to the psychological term complex, an organic network of compulsive attitudes, beliefs, and behavior deeply rooted in our alienation from God. So, yes, God's power is, is powerful. But sin is much more serious and deeply rooted and intertwined around everything 
that you are, everything you hope for, everything you believe, everything you find beautiful, sin's connected to all of that stuff. Martin Luther, I, I won't read this quote, but it's a great quote from Luther about how for years and years and years he's been teaching justification by faith and sanctification by faith, and yet he still finds this clinging dirt of legalism, even though he's been teaching it for 30 years. And I, I think most mature Christians would say the same thing. Because, of course, you know, the, one of the paradoxes of experiencing sanctification is that you don't just, you don't just quit sinning. You, you do grow. You do make real progress. But one of the manifestations of that progress is you actually see your sin more clearly and God's holiness more clearly. And so often it seems like you're not progressing as much as maybe other people around you think you are. As one of the Puritans used to say, the, the true way of Christian growth is to grow less in your own eyes. But, but I want you to understand, God's goal for you of sanctification is to get to this kind of heart-level change. Just as sin is this organic network, God's goal of sanctification is to deal with that organic network and every area of your life that's, that's messed up by that, right? The goal is not just external obedience, it's heart change. And I have to tell you, there are no ten easy steps, but rather, in the words of Eugene Eugene Peterson, a long obedience in the same direction. Now, one of the things for me, I actually came to Reformed theology through the doctrine of sanctification. I know most people come to it by being exposed to predestination and fighting with people about that and wrestling with it. And often you see this progression of, oh, I've, I've never heard such a crazy idea. Uh, and then sort of grudging acceptance. Well, it seems like it's in the Bible, but I still don't like it. And then often coming to a place where they realize this is my only hope, and it's beautiful to see the glory of God in this doctrine. I don't know where you're at in that, in that continuum, but that's a pretty common progression. For me, I came to this doctrine in college when I was just so frustrated with the shallow teaching on living the Christian life that I'd been exposed to in various parachurch ministries uh, basically just telling me to do this and do that. Do these nice little things and you'll grow. And all you got to do is just get more and more disciplined. And, you know, it just happens. And it, it wasn't happening. And I was finding that I, I, was, I was beginning to hate God the longer I was a Christian, the more I was hating God. And at some point I got thrown into teaching a Bible study with some of my friends. They said, you teach the Bible study. Uh, okay. Uh, I decided I should learn something if I was going to teach. So I started going to used bookstores and just picking up random books. The, the kind of thing that if my students did it, I would be freaked out. It's like when they typed Reformed into Google and they start going to all the websites. And uh, Wilson knows <laughs> most of the ones that pop up first are pretty, are pretty scary and pretty, pretty messed up. But, he, um, but, but I would go pick up these books. But in the Lord's providence, he led me to two books, which I later found were absolute classics with regard to the doctrine of sanctification. One was a book by an Anglican bishop from the 19th century named J.C. Ryle. It was a book called Holiness. The other was a biography of a man named Robert Murray McShane. And I remember very specifically buying this book because it was red, it was leather, it was from the 1800s, it was $2.50, and he was from Scotland. And I thought, that would be cool. I've never read about a guy from Scotland. And my parents went to a Presbyterian church, and he was Presbyterian. And he died before he was 30, and I thought, well, he must have done something significant to have a book written about him if he didn't live very long. So I started reading these books, Holiness by Ryle and Robert Murray McShane's biography, together. And what I was struck with, particularly in reading McShane, 
was there was a depth and a longing for holiness and a depth of repentance for heart sins, not just external sins, but real heart sins that I had never experienced. I had never heard people talk like this. I'd never heard people just that, that, that broken over their sin. I didn't, I didn't know what to do with this. But, but as I was, was reading that, and I was so attracted to the beauty of that. At the same time, I was reading J.C. Ryle, and I was saying, oh, this is the doctrine that leads to this. And, and, and as I kind of worked through this, eventually I talked to a pastor friend of mine, and he said, I think you're Reformed. It's like, okay, what does that mean? He said, well, here's this thing called the Westminster Confession. You should read it. I said, well, you know, I don't know about, I've not studied this, I've not studied this, I've not studied that. But if these guys understand this, sanctification, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt on this other stuff until I can look into it. Honestly, sanctification and the Reformed understanding of sanctification is what drew me into not only a deeper understanding of the gospel, but a deeper experience of the gospel. Because so much of my teaching had been such shallow teaching about the Christian life. And, and, and you know, from, from J.C. Ryle's Holiness, I found um, another book, a guy named John Owen. And if you really want to get into the, the deeps of this issue, you should pick up his book, The Mortification of Sin. That's a great old word. And if, you have, you know, if you're fond of the King James, you'll know that from Romans 8. Mortify the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit, right? Put them to death. The, the, the Puritans had a wonderful way of talking about this issue of mortification, putting to death sin at its roots. Uh, the way John Owen puts it is this way, to mortify a sin is not to utterly to kill it, root it out and destroy it, that it should have no more hold at all or residence in our hearts. It is true that this is what's aimed at, but it is, this is not in this life to be accomplished. And yet, what he's talking about in mortification of sin is dealing with sin at the root, not just the external expressions of it. A great way to think about this is that whack-a-mole game. And so often, you know, the way we fight against sin is like the whack-a-mole game. Where, you know, oh, you know, I've got to stamp that out. And, you know, I get my accountability group to help make me feel guilty, so I'll quit doing that. And then I go over here. But we're never actually getting at at the root of it. And this is where I want to begin to talk to you about these, these connected biblical ideas of worship and idolatry, because it is vital for you to understand um, this, the, these topics, if you would make any progress in sanctification. Actually, I think we're, most of the time we're even worse than the whack-a-mole game. We don't even know how to hit the mole. I, it's, it's interesting. When I talk to students, sometimes I'll talk to them and I'll say, you know, tell me how it's going. And they'll say, well, you know, I'm really, I'm really struggling, struggling with this. I'm really struggling with lust. But you know, Kevin, I'm really working on it. And when I'm in an ordinary mood, I like to ask, well, tell me what you're doing to work on it. <laughs> There's usually no answer. What they usually mean is, it's bothering me a lot. I'm thinking about it and feeling bad about it. And I'm hoping that that's going to make it better. Are you like that? Can you relate to that? Well, I hope to give you some help here. Let's talk about the importance of the gospel in sanctification. I'm going to depend a lot on on, uh, John Owen here because he's the master at teaching some of this stuff. He says this, that the spirit, if you want to understand how does the spirit mortify or kill sin, there's three ways. Now, what we're getting into here is sort of like the black box in the Christian life. 
But I, I think it's like, and I don't mean like the black box that like the flight recorder, data recorder. I mean the black box like people talk about with the intelligent design controversy where you basically, you know that somehow this is happening, but you have no idea how. It's just in there some way. And now, Owen doesn't, doesn't reveal all mysteries because the scripture doesn't necessarily reveal all mysteries, but he goes a lot farther in sort of explicating how the spirit works in sanctification than almost anybody else. And so he says, you know, it's not enough to just say, well, I know that by God's grace, I'm going to be able to overcome this sin. He wants to examine, well, how is God's grace actually going to help you? What does it do? What, what does the Spirit do? And, 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 and is it helpful for us to know that, to be able to, to involve, be involved and re- participate in this? And he says it is. Well, here's what he says. The Spirit mortifies or kills sins in three ways. One, by causing our hearts to abound in grace and the fruits that are contrary to the flesh and to the principles of them. So it's not just negative. The Spirit actually is making us new, not just killing the old. By a real, second point, by a real physical efficiency on the root and habit of sin for the weakening, destroying, and taking it away. Now there is mystery here, but the Spirit actually changes you, weakens your taste for sin, and is putting it to death. But three, notice this, the way the Spirit kills sin is by bringing the cross of Christ into the heart of a sinner by faith. Now, why, why is that? Why is that in there? I thought that was justification. But now Owen's brought it into sanctification and to the way the Spirit works. And, and he talks about how important it is to understand this. I know this is a long quote, but it's, I think you'll identify with this. He says, he talks about, I, I have this under the, the next little thing, about the importance of preaching the gospel to ourselves. Consider these words from Owen. Indeed, he says, I might bewail the endless foolish labor of poor souls who, being convinced of their convictions, do set themselves by innumerable perplexing ways and duties to keep down sin. We, we all do this. We all come up with all these little methods and all these little ways that we're going to try and kill sin or keep it down. But he says, but being strangers to the Spirit of God, all of this is in vain. He says, they combat without victory. They have war without peace and are in slavery all their days. They spend their strength for that which is not bread and their labor for that which profiteth not. This is the saddest warfare that any poor creature can be engaged in. He says, a soul under the power of conviction from the law is pressed to fight against sin, but hath no strength for the combat. Because they, they don't understand anything about the cross of Christ in the heart by faith. So they cannot but fight, they have to fight, but they can never conquer. They are like men thrust on the sword of their enemies in purpose or so that they can be slain. The law drives them on, sin beats them back. Sometimes they think they have foiled sin, conquered it, when they've only, listen to this, they've only raised the dust so that they see it not. That is, they distemper or they weaken their natural affections of fear, sorrow, and anguish, which makes them believe that sin is conquered when it is not touched. By the time they are cold, and they're not so convicted anymore, 
They must go to the battle again, and the lust which they thought to have slain appears to have no wound. You see, it's this catch-22. If, if the cross of Christ is not brought into the heart by faith, if all you have that's stirring you on to fight against sin is your sense of guilt and fear and shame, you will never make any progress. Because fear and guilt and shame do not have power to change the heart. They may actually change the way you sin, but they don't affect real change at the heart level. This is, uh, it was a point brought out by, by a man named uh, Thomas Chalmers. Thomas Chalmers taught, I've come to find out, taught men like Robert Murray McShane. This was his professor in seminary. Taught men like Horatius Bonar, the great hymn writer, and, and many others, really a whole generation of, of young leaders in the Church of Scotland in the 1800s. And he preached a sermon one time he called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Now, my spell checker doesn't like that word expulsive, but it's a great word. It's basically this idea that you never get over one love until a new love comes along. With my college students, we talk about the phenomenon of being on the rebound. Anybody, you have young people you know about this? The idea if somebody has had a crush on somebody else, or maybe they've been dating and they broke up, and then they're on the rebound, and everybody says, look out. This person's on the rebound. They're not really looking for love. They're looking for a temporary love that will drive out the memory of that old love. And what Chalmers is saying is that is very much what happens in sanctification. That the, 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 the Spirit brings a new love that drives out our former love. And this is where I want to connect the idea of idolatry and worship. Because ultimately... Ultimately, our issue in sanctification is not a behavior problem, it's a worship problem. Our problem, our deepest problem really is worship. And worship is the solution to the problem. The the deepest problem, Martin Luther makes an amazing point at one point. He says, before you break any of the Ten Commandments, you first break the first commandment. You first make God into an idol that justifies you doing what you want to do. In other words, that what's really underneath, underneath the things that you think of as sins and even what's underneath a lot of the things that you feel is you've made a functional God out of something else. Or maybe you've just made God himself into something that's less than who he really is. And so, for instance, if God is not really sovereign, well, then it's only reasonable that I should cover my bases, that I should, you know, pad my 401k, because, you know, if God's not sovereign, he's not really going to be able to take care of me when the chips are down. I better, I better cover, cover myself. Now, I'm not saying that saving money is a bad thing, but there's definitely a motivation for doing that, that, that may be flowing out of not believing that God is as good or as sovereign or as committed to you as he says he is. And I tell you, what's interesting, one of my favorite passages in thinking about this, and I'm not going to go through all this outline. I'm just going to talk from the heart about some of this. In Isaiah 44, it's one of the greatest passages in the Bible on this issue of idolatry. And what's really fascinating is that God there, I think, takes a two-pronged attack on Israel's idolatry. Israel has rejected God. 
and instead has put their hope in idols, in, in other things that are, that are less than God, but which seem more controllable and more immediate and more able to satisfy and give them what they need. And what God does in exposing that, number one, he exposes how foolish that is and how impotent the idols are. Wonderful, sarcastic language in Isaiah 44 saying, basically, you know, you put your hope in this block of wood, but, you know, the, blo- the guy who made the wood, you know, he t- half that wood he took and roasted it and, you know, ate his fill and ate his dinner and the rest of it he bows down to and says, you're my God, save me. It's ludicrous. It's ridiculous, right, to put our hope in something other than God. Yet we do it. But Isaiah exposes how ridiculous that is. But he does something else as that chapter goes on. God doesn't just tell us how ridiculous the idols are. He also shows us that he is the one who's already given us what we're trying to get from the idols. In other words, and this is where it connects to Chalmers, Chalmers would say, you're never going to be able to really let go of your sin until you see something is more beautiful and believable than your sin. Right? That's why I prayed the way I did at the beginning. My friend Scott Rowley loves to pray that prayer. I think he learned it from Bill Lane, the guy I mentioned earlier. But this idea that, you know, the Spirit come and make Jesus more beautiful and believable than all these other idols. We've got, sanctification is a heart issue. J.C. Ryle says in that book, Holiness, the heart is the main thing of religion. It's the heart. And how do you get to the heart? Your heart finds so many things more beautiful and more trustworthy than God. And it's not enough for me just to stand up in here and say, stop it. You're wrong. Your heart is wrong. Though that's true. And there's a place for that. And you need friends that will tell you that. And you need pastors who will open up the word and tell you that. That this thing you're putting your hope in will not work. It's empty. Can't see. It can't help you. Has no power. But not only that, you need friends who will open up the Bible and say, look at Jesus. He's the warrior. He's the one who's committed himself to care for you, right? And so what you see is the way to deal with sin at the heart level, the way sanctification progresses is connected to seeing Jesus as more beautiful and believable. Therefore, worship, gratefully remembering who Jesus is and what he's done is absolutely vital, for fighting against sin, you may even put it this way, that sanctification happens in the worship service itself. This is a point that Keller is really adamant about. A lot of us think that, you know, I hear the sermon and then I go home and I apply it. And that's where sanctification happens, when I put my will power to work. But he says, no, sanctification actually can take place in worship itself because ultimately what's going on is a spiritual battle for allegiance. You can see it all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? Which is more trustworthy? God's word, God's prohibition, don't eat this fruit because I say so. Or it looks good. Looks like it filled me up. Looks good to the eye, right? That that issue is always going on. And and how, how how will we prevail? How will God prevail? By opening our eyes to see who Jesus is. And this is what the Spirit's committed to, right? Jesus says this in John chapter 16, verse 4, where he says that the Spirit 
there's a paraphrase, but the Spirit will basically glorify me. He's basically shine a spotlight on me and my work. So much of it, we think that the Spirit's work is to, you know, give us all this experience and this and all this power and all these things that's all disconnected from Jesus. But Jesus says the work of the Spirit is to show you me. And Paul says this in Galatians. He says that Jesus came to make us sons and daughters of the living God. But God sent the Spirit so that you would feel like sons and daughters. Right? Because unless you feel like sons and daughters, you have no power to fight against sin. Unless you really understand, unless your heart is captured by the beauty of Jesus, then you may be raising a dust and fighting against what you think is sin, but in a lot of times what you're really doing is just changing one idol for another. And this is what Chalmers says in that, in that sermon on the expulsive power, that so often, you know, it's possible for a young man to actually overcome lust, but not actually be growing in Christ. In other words, eventually, a lot of people decide that it's more important to settle down and maybe get a good job and not just chase women all the time. And you may think that this person has matured, but they've just exchanged one idol for a more socially respectable one. You know, and it's possible even for people to tire and lose their taste for money because they want power. A lot of people spend a lot of well-hard-earned money to get power later in life. And you just think, well, you know, what's going on? And he says that in so many of these cases, the root of sin, trying to take care of themselves, trying to save themselves, has never been touched. So uh, I'll, I'll close with one more quote of scripture and then we will, uh, I, I guess I got a minute or two for a question maybe. And I'll certainly stay for a while if any of you are going to stay. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul says it this way, we who with unveiled faces, all, now I know the NIV says reflect, but the little sub reading that alternate reading that they have below is or gaze and I think gaze is the better reading here we who with unveiled faces all gaze upon the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the spirit see that the pow- there's power in what you're gazing upon the Lord's glory, and particularly, you know, the Corinthians are the ones that Paul said, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. The ultimate manifestation of the glory of God is at the cross. And it says we gaze upon Christ and him crucified that our fear and our suspicion, if, if you're having trouble believing that God cares for you, that God is sovereign, that God is patient, that God you know, on and on and on and on, look at the cross and pray that the Spirit would help you to see what's really there. This is why, this is our goal in reading the Bible. This is our goal in the sacraments, right? That there's this spiritual warfare taking place that our eyes would be open to see that Jesus is more beautiful and believable than all these other things. Which of your idols died for you today, right? Which of them will really be there for you when you can't serve it anymore or give it what it wants. But Jesus will be there. He will never leave you or forsake you. And he is, he really is 
what you need. This quote from Spurgeon is so wonderful. He says, when I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought my sin a trifle. But when I knew him to be my father, then I mourned that I could ever have kicked against him. When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. I would submit to you that there is a world of wisdom about sanctification in that, in that quote. Thoughts or, or questions? I'm sure there's lots of them. Um, like I say, it's such a big, big topic. But I hope that gives you some food for thought in thinking about this. Yes, yeah, and I would add to that or nuance that to say, is this greater, what am I trying to get from this? And do I know that I've already got it? See, that's the great tragedy, is the security that you're trying to get from your idol, you already have. It's not just that you may get it one day, you already have it. The fact is, you run to this, to this other God because you think you don't have it, but you do. And, and that's why the, the idea of remembrance is so key in the scriptures um, and so important for us and I think it's one of the the real points of community as well is it takes a community to remember um, how good God is other thoughts you'll see here I put some other things if you want to get farther into this idea of um, let me see one of these can I see one of these just if you want to get farther into this idea of definitive and progressive sanctification I put a little thing where I go through that with Romans 6 I've got some quotes from a great old guy, John Calhoun, um, on there you might find helpful. Um, a thing from John Newton, great, the guy, hymn writer wrote um, Amazing Grace and a lot of other hymns. He has some wonderful letters on indwelling sin, um, so I put that in there. And then these quotes on sanctification and mortification, um, just some more kind of, you know, j- just to basically say to you, there's a lot of people who have been saying this in different ways for a lot, a lot of years. And, and I would say, you know, if I had more time, I could do another lecture on how the great hymns illustrate this. Um, because the, one of the differences between a lot of the modern songs we sing and the great hymns is the great hymns basically hold up Jesus. Or as J.F. Packer said in an essay one time, the preacher's job is to display Christ. And the great hymns do that. They display Christ for us. Whereas a lot of modern songs are, are more giving instructions to our emotions. You know, in, in good writing, if you're writing a novel and, you, and you're a poor writer, you might say, well, the heroine was beautiful. But if you're, if you're a good writer, you'll describe her in such a way that the reader says she's beautiful. And the great hymns have a way of holding up Christ and the gospel in a way that we say, that's beautiful. It's very different than, see, you know, the hymns and the songs that have been written after the Second Great Awakening, where all the emphasis is now is on our will, are very different. And they're basically just sort of pep rallies for our will. That I just want to do this. I just want to, I just want to. You hear that language all the time. Now, there's an appropriate place for making vows to God and responding to him and whatnot. But worship should not be a continual sort of ongoing us making vows, us making vows, us making vows, without us ever gazing upon the Lord and his goodness and his promises. It's the promises of God that faith feeds on. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. His good pleasure. Yeah. Very favorite, just because it clarifies. 
yes. where all this is coming from. That's right. That's right. And, you know, uh, our Shorter Catechism says, you know, that, that sanctification is a work of God's grace, God's free grace, right? right? But so often we don't, we don't believe that the way we go about instructing people in sanctification. We seem to think that it's a work of our discipline and trying harder. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that can help. I mean, the good thing is, even if you're not reading the Bible for the right reason, you know, it's a living word that breaks through. Um, but it, but it, it's helpful to understand the point is to, to, to see Jesus for who he is, right? And he had some harsh things to say about people that read the Bible and never saw him. Um, so, anyway. Uh, Kevin, one of the 